0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn.
3: Hey, hey, welcome to Beer okay. Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, it's Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. And it's uh, end of 2016. This will be our, our New Year's show. I'm here uh, in Massachusetts traveling around with with Jay and, and, and Mark Zapp. Uh, they're opening a new place up in Amesbury, Massachusetts. But we got a chance to come down to Salem, Mass, and visit with Chris Loring of uh, Notch Brewing, someone that I've been waiting to meet for a long time. And uh, we're going to talk about the state of Massachusetts beer and and some other stuff but anyways cheers guys welcome cheers, to the show cheers, cheers. you know this is one of these travel shows so we got a remote mic and uh we're sitting here in a, a beautiful old brick building right on this this water in salem chris tell us about this place where we're at you know the history of this building and history of salem this is a cool place we know about it for witches but i've actually never been to salem massachusetts yeah,
4: there's a lot more than witches in salem uh so this building was built in 1914 uh, all brick construction was a Salem fire um, that wiped out the whole south side of the town. And uh, this was one of the first buildings built after that. It was built for the REO Motor Car Company, which is, if you knew the band, REO Speedwagon. That was a truck that the REO uh, company made. So we're in the back end, which is the garage. Uh, actually, this is a boiler room. It's on the South River. South River feeds into Salem Harbor. So it's an old industrial building downtown that we're able to you know, transition into something that's brewery, but also taproom and beer garden. It's a It's a great spot. Salem has a great long history of... Um, our trade, um, and then you know being really close to the water, and taking advantage of that, and so you know being you know on the water was just a huge bonus for us. One of my must-haves with this brewery when we came to Salem was to have a beer garden. It was minimum 100-seat outdoor beer garden. Because New England is, you know, we're Puritan culture, and it's very tough to find spots to drink beer outside where, you know, f- force-fed a meal, right, <laughs> just to be able to go out and have a beer and relax. So this was a really great great thing, not only an outside beer garden, but on the water, just, you know, just a home run for us.
3: Well, that's great. It's, it's nice to be drinking a beer. I've been up in Massachusetts for a week, and I found it kind of hard to get craft beer at, at my package store. You know, where, where I'm from in well, there's a package store with, you know, I had a choice of a, something from Ipswich, which was good, and I ended up going for my old standby, Lagunitas IPA. But, you know, why is it? Like, I, I, I'm not seeing all these local beers in, in package stores and other stores around the state. I mean, yeah, you were telling me about that because I know you work at a package store.
5: Well, yeah, so um, I've been moonlighting at uh, Grease Fine Wine up in uh, Amesbury, which is a great little kind of boutique spot, and they kind of really focus on wine and spirits. But they've got a decent beer selection but it's difficult because, um, like what their beer buyers has been telling me, you know, people are no longer kind of loyal to brands or loyal to specific beers. There's so much out there that they're constantly rotating. So everybody's trying to drink what's new and what's hip. And it's kind of difficult for at least the package store to kind of keep up with that, you know, especially if they're not on top of the new breweries opening and what everybody's drinking. It's really difficult for them to bring something in, everybody buys it, and then they bring a bunch more in, and all of a sudden it doesn't sell again. So, um, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's, there's so many breweries out there now and there's so many options and that's one of the main things I hear people come in and, you know, you see if you can help them and I'm like, man, there's just so many choices now. Like they look at the shelves and it's almost like they're dumbfounded, like what to choose. So, which, you know, pushes people towards, again, it's almost getting into where wine is for a lot of people. They buy wine by the label. You know, that's what a lot of people tell me. My wine knowledge is not as extensive as the beer knowledge, but, you know, selling people or helping people choose a wine, a lot of them say, hey, just, I'm just looking for a nice label. You know, I just hope that the wine's kind of good, it
3: goes along but where, with So it. where do people get their craft beer in Massachusetts? Do they go directly to the breweries? Is that that That's been an
4: ongoing trend. You know, it's something that we've seen in the last three or four years. Some of the legislation in Massachusetts changed that made it easier for brewers to sell direct to the consumer. The previous brew pub, the license only, now manufacturers can sell directly to the consumer in taproom environments. And we've seen, you know, last year alone maybe like, I do know, 10, including Notch. You know, even though Notch has been around for seven years, this was our first, you know, brick and mortar. And um, so it's, the younger consumers definitely, we're seeing them come here. Um, they're buying a lot of beer, and I think the wholesalers are starting to realize they're losing a little bit of money because the brewers want to go direct because they capture the margin. So it's a whole new dynamic. I, I, where it ends, I don't know.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's part of the, you know, leading to that, um, what made, what's making our brewery, our venture, uh, um, possible is being able to sell direct. I mean, you know, um, you know that if you, if you have to go through a distributor, you have to sell large margins. I mean, you have to work at such tight margins and sell a lot of beer in order to make money. So it becomes almost impossible for a small brewery to come out and, out of the gate and actually make any money without working 24 hours a day. But now, you know, if you're selling direct to the consumer with this, with this new uh, with the new uh, um, pour license that uh, Massachusetts uh, snuck in in the middle of the night on a bill, thank God, um, it made it possible for breweries like Jay's and myself to be able to open up and, and, and just sell directly to the public.
5: Yeah, I think for us, I mean, opening Sylvaticus in the space, Jimmy saw the space this morning that, like, without being able to have, to pour a permit full beers, um... You know we wouldn't be able to open as a seven barrel system no way and and that space wouldn't work for us because it's not made for manufacturing really it's made it's more of an intimate space there's no there's no loading dock like it's but we chose it because we want to be a destination where people can come and enjoy the beer there and it really
4: works because it's central in downtown namesbury
3: so chris about about not so you said before you're you were just contracting
4: yes i've been a professional brewer for a long time i started professional brewing in 1993 uh, with Tremont in Boston, and then uh, that sold to a competitor. And then when I started Notch, just because the reasons we're talking about, the dynamics are, and, and session beer as well, so I brew all beers of modest, modest and lower alcohol. Um, so I, and I'm not getting a large margin on my beers. To build a brewery that would be profitable without a tap room you know, in 2010 would have been impossible. I would have had to get to scale about 15,000 barrels to turn a profit. So, I mean, you can't grow into that because you're going to have just a lot of debt or a rich parent. Um, So, you know, our our route was, or my route was contracting. Dirty word way back in the day. But because I'm a brewer, I was able to find facilities that allowed me to be, you know, participate within the brews uh, or brew it myself. um, And that really, you know, got me to where we are today. So. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if I could do that today. It's it's so competitive right now that if I would, if I went into a contract situation today without that face-to-face contact with a consumer with a tap room, I don't know how you make that work. It's a it's a different. It, more has changed in the last five years in beer than I've seen in the last 25 years. It's just been a total change and shift in how people are consuming beer.
3: So w- when did the law in Massachusetts change?
4: I think like three or four years ago. There were there were ways around it. It was just a little more convoluted. You could be a manufacturer or excuse me, a, a, a small brewer non-brew pub and sell direct to the consumer. You had to get a beer and wine license from your local um, city or town. And a lot of the city and towns in Massachusetts are capped so they weren't available or they were expensive. There's no, there's none of that anymore. As long as you have that, that small brewer's license, you, and as long as the town says okay, you can get the license to sell. Uh, and that's why we're seeing so many small brewers appear. Without that, we wouldn't have seen the amount of growth we've seen in small brewers in Massachusetts. And that's great because the reasons you mentioned at the top of the show is that there hasn't been a lot of local support for brewers. I've seen it for 25 years that Massachusetts struggled in terms of local brewers getting to the forefront. Now we've had Harpoon, we've had Sam, but San Diego did better in Boston than any other local brewer did. Right? There was just transient consumer in Boston, a lot of college students. No one had any real affinity for local beer, um, but partly because there weren't a lot of them. Right? And So now we have a lot more and we have the experience we can go to the tap room. That's really done a great thing for, for Massachusetts.
3: Um, in greater Boston in terms of the cultivating a local beer scene. And then the beer we're drinking. So you said you're focusing on session beers. This is nice. It's, like, it's a rock beer, but it's an easy-drinking rock beer.
4: Yeah, so everything we do is 4.5 and lower. Um, it's an arbitrary number, but it's lower than standard. You know, I, I have this mindset of beers have basically three general like, strength categories. There's normal, which to me is like 5 and above. There's strong, which is typically more than 6, and then lower than 5 is, is basically session or, or you know, lower ABV. And people can debate that, but I don't really care. I just put my head down and do what I do. So all our beers typically fall into the fours, some in the threes. Um, most are based in traditional styles, um, a lot of lager, a lot of Czech, um, Czech beers, some German, but I also do a lot of American IPA, uh, not IPAs, Session IPAs and pale ales. Um, but we'll fool around with other things. We, we do sour, we do um, Berliner Weiss, um, you know, things that really have a history of Session beer. Um, and for me, it was because when I started Notch in 2010, the beers that were available to me were strong and hoppy and boozy and i don't like to drink that way i mean i like to drink half liters or liters over a longer period of time and not lose my wits too quickly you know so that's beer to me is more refreshment trivial. beer to me is not about you know over analyzing and geeking out and and you know it doesn't have closing your off Closing yourself off from everyone around you because you're trying to, you know, get in tune with this beer. Beer to me is like, all right, this beer's great. Now let's talk. Let's do what we're doing right now. That's, yeah, to yeah. me, that's the experience of beer. So
6: let's yeah. talk about this beer. So, Mark, how, how does it taste? Uh, this yeah. is fantastic. I mean, I think uh, I think uh, not only is this beer good, but the space is equally stunning. Uh, but this rash beer, um, it's really flavorful. Um, the smoke is right on. Um, I mean, I would... I can drink the hell out of this beer, that's for sure. And you know, you know, like you're saying that uh, uh, most a lot of people don't brew beers in these in these lower ABVs, and I think it's really hard to to brew really flavorful beers at this alcohol percentage. I mean, you 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 don't you, you don't tread into this water easily. I think it. I am complimenting you because I think no, that this you. is this is not an easy session beers are not easy to make. Um, I think it's much easier to throw a kitchen sink at it and make it boozy and hoppy um, than it is to do this. This has a lot of finesse and it's very rounded.
4: Thank you. I, I mean, I think the challenges with lower ABV beers are, they're just different challenges. I mean, at the higher end of ABV, it's about balance because you have so much going on and how all those flavors intermingle and you know, can they have this, this succinct kind of flavor to them at the end. With session beer, it's, it's that you have... Um, fewer opportunity to grab flavor from the ingredients. and how do you how do you get as much flavor out as you want uh, as you need? And that's that's the challenge. But I don't you know harder, more difficult. I just think that, any brewer who's skilled can eventually get there it just takes iteration it takes time and it takes focus mm-hmm. and most people don't focus on lower ABV beer so there's not a lot of great ones right like, we have a ton of session IPA in the market right now and I think 75 percent are just you know poor efforts you know 25 percent are awesome yeah because those brewers have spent the time good yeah right so yeah. It's, it's not it's any brewer with with you know the
3: skill to brew a higher ABV beer can certainly do a lower one they just there hasn't been the focus there
4: right you know?
2: Well, you about, do it well, man. Yeah, you. and what about
3: this style? Because I'm, I'm used to, like, the, the Schlenko, like, stronger, like, almost syrupy, you know, yeah. s- smoked ales. Um, why did, is this a, a traditional recipe, or is this something that you, you came up with? Well, this,
4: this is probably one of the ones that, you know, when you look at, you know, lager in particular, you look at Czech Republic, they don't do smoked beer. And so you look at Germany, they have, you know, Zvickel and some other styles that are traditionally a little lower. Um, you know, Rauch beer isn't one you would think of as a low ABV beer. But this 4.5, you know, it's in a range of, like, a standard beer. Um, but I wanted to be able to do something that had, a you know, good smoke character that you could have multiple of. And so I had to split that smoke kind of down the middle of being very light, but not being too, too intense. And so right, I, to me, this is like right in the middle of smokiness. And It's funny when you make a smoke beer, half the consumers like, I, it's not smoky enough. And the other half of the consumer is like, it's too smoky, right? There's, there's never the perfect, like, this is right where we need it. But for me, this is where I need it to have like three half liters and not get overwhelmed. Um, And not not with sweetness or smoke or intensity, but not so that it's bland or it's boring, right? Enough to entice you for that next half liter.
3: Jay, and Mark, have you guys made a smoked beer before? Well, ironically enough.
6: (laughs) 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 Ironically enough, we brought uh, a 100% smoked uh, beer uh, lager that Jay and I did. Uh, I believe we used uh, cherry wood smoke. Um, I think I think it's 70, and a little bit of
5: wood. cherry wood and thirty
4: wood. Oh, that's
5: but we we
6: went we went we went the full Monty on this one, hundred um, percent, and it's been it's been aging probably for about five or six months in, in my cellar, my proper cellar in New England. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad we brought that because I'm curious to, to know what you think. I want on. to
4: try. Yeah, this the rug beer we have here in the taproom now is fifty uh, percent uh, uh, wood smoked, and the rest is just a variety of other other malts be interested to try that yeah
3: you know talking about malts I think I was trying to think about how we first met and you said it was Andrea Stanley at Valley Malt right. might have been somehow introduced us right right and so uh, Valley Malts has been
4: really um, fun to deal with or work with I should say um, I've been using their, their grains for five six years now and you know part of the thing that to me was that as a local brewer we just talked about local support was that I asked my local pubs Retailers to support local, and when there was a local maltster, you know I had to finish that promise, and support them because otherwise I'd be a hypocrite, All right. And it's good that you know beer, you know, there's a criticism of you know beer's not local, all the greens come from all over the world, blah blah blah. The only thing that's local is water. The labor's local, and that's the most important thing because that money stays here. The money we spend goes back to our employees, and they spend it locally. So to have be able to buy grain locally and have that stay within New England is really important to me. Um, so we use a variety of different uh, grains from Valley Malt. Uh, we have on right now, we have a, uh, basically a sour saison, dry hopped with El Dorado, and that's 100% Valley Malt, uh, wheat, and pills, Uh or pale, excuse me. Um, so it's been able to fun to collaborate with them, and we're going to have a couple projects coming up with uh, Valley Malt this year. We're going to focus on basically corn, malted corn in a variety of different, uh, different roasts. everything from pale to amber to dark. Uh, and have a lot of fun with that because those will make some
3: very interesting lagers. Chris is smiling when he said that. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: I could I, I, I see the wheels turning, yeah. He started talking about the corn and they started smiling. I love corn
4: as an ingredient. and when I, when I cut my teeth as a brewer in 93, I was an apprentice at a brew pub and we brewed a lot of this really shitty um, uh, light lager and it had a lot of cornflake in it or maize. And the beer was boring, but it was boring because, of the, because the recipe was boring. But I, all, that, that flavor of corn stuck with me and that it was very, very interesting. So, you know, I was able to start using corn in recipes, and I, it really kind of hit me, like, what a positive attribute corn could make to, to certain recipes. Uh, it's not a negative. Uh, it's not less expensive by any means, um, and it's not bland. It definitely has a character that, you know, if, if used the right way, is very, very interesting. So I'm, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, of using what is known as adjunct in a way that you know, isn't uh, traditionally done. You know, like the adjunct of, of corn as a, a cheapener or as a sugar. Like, yeah, I can understand why people don't like that, but you can turn that on its head and make something really unique with
6: it. Hey, it's like it's like using the, it's like using the Death Star as weapons back on them isn't it <laughs> using corn in your beer i mean to, ha- to actually i mean you know uh, the larger breweries they use it as a component to to save money and and not spend it on barley and and it, it it's got that sort of distinct you know i was one-dimensional I, character i was trying to stay away from star wars <laughs> <things,
2: but>, you, <laughs> you know, can't do
6: not when i'm here
3: i tell you what we're, we're gonna take a short break we'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio all right
1: In 1996, L Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalogue of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a PowerMont focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hey, hey, welcome back
3: to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, we're up here in Massachusetts celebrating the new year and don't forget to join uh, HeritageRadioNetwork.org, be a member, business member, some of our new supporters are Threes Brewing in Brooklyn and Brooklyn Brew Shop. They've signed up recently, so uh, go and support those guys. So we're up here at Notch Brewing in Salem and I'm losing my mind because I've been looking for craft beer up here in Massachusetts and now I'm getting it. So we had a great route beer now we're on a second beer. But, um, you know, Chris, you have a really cool system here. You've got you got an interesting tap system. It's a great place to come. You've got a beer garden in the summer right here on, on the water in Salem. Tell us about your tap system. I mean, that was a very unique, it's like a Czech-style system.
4: Yeah, so I, you know, I have this tap system that we imported from uh, Pilsen in, uh, in Czech Republic. And if you go to the Czech Republic, the way they pour their lagers um, is a little bit different than
3: what we do here.
6: I'm stop
3: Sound of Czech mug. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, these, like, real solid, thick glass mm. mugs. These
4: also, um, you know, Czech Republic as well. And so, you know, the, the reason that it uh, was important for me to do here is that you look at cultures that really embrace low ABV beer, and Czech Republic is, is you know, the height of that, more so than even Britain, where the, the beer they conser- consume the most of is a 4% uh, pilsner, or what they call pale lager. Uh, and the way they serve it's re- pretty unique, and that's what we have here. It's a... It's a uh, Tap system where instead of you know, kind of like this piston arrangement that has a vertical throw that you have in the United States, this has a horizontal ball valve, and so the way that the way that served is the ball valve is opened only a little bit at the start. It creates um, foam, a restriction, and there's a little bit of like say an inch or two of foam at the bottom of the mug, and. The faucet is long and goes under that foam head, so it goes into the beer, which is you know, typically in the United States as a no-no, because those faucets can't come off, they can't be sanitized, they can't be cleaned. These faucets are cleaned, they can come off, you know, either uh, periodically at the end of the day. So anyways, the, the faucet then is turned uh, all the way on, the ball valves turn all the way on, so you have clear beer coming out, and that clear beer then pushes up that foam that you created. And as you can see here, we get a really nice, tight, dense, creamy head. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that you'll find in the Czech Republic is this idea, the idea of Pilsner in the United States is really, I think, one that is um, a little narrow in view, because in the Czech Republic, Pilsner doesn't mean necessarily bright, crisp, highly carbonated, crystal clear. In the Czech Republic, you get some creaminess in those beers, and there's some malt sugar in those beers, and the way they pour the beer creates this, this, this kind of you know, nice kind of creaminess as you drink through the foam, but it finishes dry and, and all that stuff, but you get the, the, that kind of like mouthfeel or that palate that most American consumers wouldn't associate to a pilsner. So I think part of that's in the pour. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to get this. We'll, we'll finish with with the pils um, before you go. Uh, and you get a sense of that. Um, but that was really important for us because I wanted to pour Czech. I not only do I want to brew it in a very traditional fashion, we have a decoction system here, and we deco- all our lagers, but I want to make sure that we, we, uh, we poured it in the same fashion in the Czech Republic.
3: So you said you, you, you have that system to pour your lagers, but then you... Yeah, uh, the and nails on a different tap
4: and then we have a we have a bank we have 10 um, you know more traditional faucets that we use for our basic ales or you know anything that's not lager uh, from the front right
3: so you were talking before about using corn as an ingredient I mean Jay as a brewer have, have you worked with corn or rice or
5: not other ad not a lot I mean for me you know coming in and it was always kind of you have like the stigma for corn but I've talked to a lot of guys who have you know used it and more and more now that you can get it local and you can kind of Use that flavor to influence the beer more, and how you know it's not just to kind of cheapen Same the money. beer, yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I haven't really worked with it at all.
3: I mean, one thing with Valley Malt, you're talking about, about them as a source, I feel like that the movement to, to have all different grains, you know, different types of rice, has really been growing, and, and, and I like the differences in flavors from the grains. Um, do you want to talk more about that?
4: Yeah, so uh. Valley Malt this year, what they're doing is they're they're doing these uh, malt sensory analysis um, sessions, if you will. And they're getting brewers to try a number of different malts um, based on this new method of of, of analysis where you can take the grains, you do what's called a congress mash, and you get basically a sense of what that malt is uh, without having to go through an entire brew. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down, this was probably just a couple weeks ago, it was myself and... uh, uh, Warmtown, Cambridge Brewing Company, um, Throwback, we all sat down around a table and Andrea went through the, all of this and she, you know, basically gave us grains that we knew like Vireman and uh, Simpson, you know, established malters and then she did stuff that she did on her own pilot um, There were different grain heritage varieties because what she's trying to determine is what are the varieties that she wants the farmers to grow based on the brewers' input, which is fantastic. And there were a couple of grains, just blind, there were a couple of the, the, the varieties that she grew and malted. I um, she didn't grow, but she malted from the from the farmer. And I swore they were British malts. I was going to bet my life on it was a faucet malt. And it was a locally grown, wonderful malt. So we're starting to see an advancement of the quality of the local grains getting better. And that's because you know, we've supported them, and they've been able to build their infrastructure, and now the demand is getting higher. And you know, I hope to see that, even though it's difficult to grow barley malt, you know, in the New England region, there are certain varieties that do grow well and taste great, and that's really been a lot of fun to be a part of that.
0: And
3: then the beer in glass right now. So this is I like I like beer color. I like the first one was a rock beer, a little amber. This is a little darker. What is this beer? So
4: that's Tamave. Tamave is Czech for dark, and so it's a dark lager. It's four point four percent, and um, this is one of the beers I had an epiphany with when I when I went to the Czech Republic. As you know, the Czech Republic has this neophyte doing a lot about beer, which was me, you know, fifteen years ago. And I saw this dark lager, and it was four percent alcohol, and it was wonderfully flavorful. It was malty without being sweet. Uh, it was interesting that you wanted to have you know a number of pints, but it wasn't cloying. Um, and this has been a fun one for us because there's, there's now in craft beer, there's the consumer that thinks that dark means imperial stout, and sweet and right. boozy, and they're gonna sip it and it should come in a tulip. Or right. that dark
6: means higher in alcohol.
4: Or higher in alcohol. And now we have a beer that is modest in alcohol, that's not the sweet, and you can drink three half liters and have a lot of fun with. Um, so I'm mean, this is one of the styles I really love. It's it's not quite as dry as, as a Swartz beer, and it's not quite as sweet as a dunkel. It kind of cuts right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, it's um, lovely. You know, it has a good palate fullness to it. Yeah, I've
3: had some dunkels that can be too too sweet. Yeah.
4: Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of sweet beers. I'll have one, but it's not something I drink multiple multiple of. Um, so this this beer's been a lot of fun to do. We also have another version that's called Chardonnay. Chernay is checked for dark, excuse me, checked for black, and so it's a slightly darker version. It's a little more roasty, a little more cocoa in the aroma, and that's what we
3: have in cans. This is one we just did just did for the tap room. So, so how do you get the, the, the color from the malts without making it sweet?
4: Well, so the color these, this color comes from a, a, a malt called Carafa, and Carafa, and it's actually a huskless variety, so the husk is removed, so that you don't have the tannins uh, that would lead to this kind of like bitter, astringent kind of character to it. So it smooths it out a little bit. Um, this isn't sweet because, um, you know, we don't start, this is a 12 Plato beer. So you're not starting out with a lot of sugar. Uh, 12 Plato is you know, basically, I guess for home to uh, 1048. Um, mm-hmm. if I'm doing my math right, all, i use Plato. Um, and it finishes a little bit high cause, um, there's a lot of specialty malt in this. The base malts are Munich and Vienna. There's no Pils malt in this at all. And so it gives that texture and flavor, but it's not going to be something that finishes with a this, this, like, sweetness. There's not a lot of crystal malt in this. Um, which tends to get raisiny and kind of overly sweet. So it's just a balance of
6: all those malts. I can taste the Vienna, and this is spectacular.
3: One thing about this type of beer, it's the kind of beer that makes you burn.
6: <laughs> Unlike
3: some IPAs and other things. Is there a science behind that? Or is it just me having a fun day?
4: I can't I can't even comment with that one. That's good. No, this
6: That's is good. this is really good. I mean, I, I spent a little time in the Czech Republic, so I, I, I share your fondness for the place because simple beers, but done so well. Yeah. Um, you you can't even the Pilsner Urquell that they send over here is not even in the same universe as what you would drink over there. Yeah. And it's just you know, so it's nice to to get this sort of ilk. Is, is um, that, that's really What's gets
3: your jazz on though is, 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 is Czech I mean is um, that really the place you look to most for inspiration it's definitely one of
4: the spots and in, 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 you know being the session beer brewer uh, they have a number of different styles that the United States doesn't even realize exists And so it's been fun to kind of bring those to the forefront we have another Czech amber on here called Polet Mave you know, so Tamave is dark Polo means half half dark it's really lousy way to explain a beer right <laughs> um, but so those are the ones that get me excited because the Czechs do a really good job at, at um, nuance and subtlety and because part of it's uh, they make great beer because of the process and not so much like the overindulgence of too many ingredients or too many ingredients it's really blending great quality ingredients and through process bringing out the best of those ingredients so, so things that so Nate who's our brewery manager and I really dig our beers of nuance um and subtlety and elegance, but are flavorful, right? That doesn't mean boring, right? And quality doesn't mean over the top, right? There's, so, there's some other element of beer where it's been lost. That subtlety and balance and nuance uh, has a place, right? It's not, it's not a bad place. Because right now, and it's been going on for a while now, is that you know over the top, like uh, every pale ale needs to be dry hopped and three pounds per barrel needs to be the minimum, and if you can't smell it from across the table, it's not a good beer. And, you know, I get why people like that, right? There's a lot of fun with that. But this means something that is a pound per barrel is not good, right? Right. It might be just a little bit more nuanced. But
6: nuance is lost on a lot of people these days. Well, I mean, European European beer is a balance. It's all about balance, right? I mean, you know, like you look at a a Czech Pilsner is is definitely has its own sort of flavor profile. You look at the German version of it, um, it's a lot more crisp, a lot more sharp. A, lot, a little less in the diacetyl end, you know, I did, but they're all very well balanced. They may be a little bit different as per region, per water, per ingredients, but they're all, the, 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 the thread in these European beers is the, is, the, is the balance. It's all about balance.
4: And balance leads to, you know, for lack of a better word, drinkability. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't serve flights here. I loathe flights. I think they're the antichrist of craft beer because it leads to sipping and tasting and evaluation and phone check-ins and antisocial behavior. Right, Drink a whole half liter. But do you have Wi-Fi here or <laughs> not? We do have, no, you do have Wi-Fi. have <laughs> yeah. wi Turn it off, man. <laughs> yeah. There's but no TVs in here.
6: Well, thank God. Drink a half liter. This is a nice atmosphere to for drinking yeah, beer. Yeah, no, right? I got you. I in,
4: got you. In, the problem with flights is that you drink a two or th- a three ounce sample, you might think that's a great beer. Put a half liter in front of you. You may get to the end of that pint and be like, this is cloyingly sweet and terrible. Yeah. Right? So flights lead to intensity of flavor, intensity of aroma that may work great on a three ounce beer, but work terrible on a half liter. Right? I want a beer that tastes good right to the end. And that takes nuance and subtlety and, and some skill. Right? Anyone can make something that tastes great in a three ounce sample, right? Well, I agree.
3: I'm always into like, what beer will people order? Not just one, but two or three or four. Right.
5: The flight kind and of that's speaks how we to ju- the way like, you know, as a
3: retailer, that's how I judge mm-hmm. is am I gonna buy a beer again? People have to wanna to keep drinking it. Yeah, like, like the flight kind
5: of speaks to the way society is now. It's this very like quick like to short attention span move right on to so the it's next like in-
3: Instagram rather than like really enjoying yeah, yeah. Right. So to be doing. able to sit down and I have and to enjoy say on that note this is later. you mentioned there's no TVs here talking yeah. about a place to drink beer I would come to notch brewing in salem to hang out i wouldn't yeah. even leave here yeah <laughs> because and the same thing what you guys are opening in amesbury mass probably open by the summer hopefully silvaticus the same thing you're in a historical building you're next to the water you'll have outdoor seating you know, people want to go somewhere they actually want to hang out you know our modern world is not set up for having a good time you know and and, and by embracing what you're doing by local ingredients and having craft product that's what we're all about that's what our life is about you know so right. cheers to you guys man yeah, Cheers. i'm getting charged on this stuff <laughs> and i could drink more of these so and then for jay have you made have you made like kind of like dark loggers and these type of beers because you were at 49th state brewing in alaska for a number of years So i came back I to i studied in germany for a
5: while so i kind of my focus was on loggers and i have this affinity for very similar kind of sessionable clean malty um, Really well-made, refined beers, and when we started up 49th State, um, I was able to kind of, even though, you know, I was able to get in on the ground floor to kind of develop the, the beers and the styles that we serve. So we didn't just kind of do just like the colored beers. I was able to play around, and we did a number of our light beer was a, a Hellas, and our. Uh, we did a Vienna Lager, which was our, you know, it could fall in the amber category, but similar. We're using some Caraffa malt to just give you the color. and but really have this really nice strong base of Vienna and Munich malt to give it some really nice flavor and, and nuances that is lost on a lot of people and a lot of brewers, you know, the same way. You know, I, I, I enjoy a beer like this ten times more than a beer that's loaded with five pounds per barrel of hops because it's to me it's it can be a little messy, like it's a little not... You know, there's now don't get me wrong, there's some great beers out there, you know, that especially up in this area, you know, the New England IPA, there's some breweries up here that, that, um, like Chris was saying, they've been doing it for a while and they do it well, but there's a lot of other ones where it's just like, you know, you're just kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it and just because you're putting a lot of boutique hops in it doesn't make it a good beer. And there's a lot of other underlying flaws in those beers that are kind of masked by the fact that all you taste and smell and burp is hops.
6: Yeah. I mean, and Jay worked up in a in a, <clears throat> in a in a busy brew pub environment, and I was sort of I went up and guest and helped brew uh, when he was in the middle of the season, a number of times, and uh, you know he was able to churn out these really beautifully elegant lagers on a tight brew pub schedule in thirty days, which I thought was quite impressive. And so there's a there's a there's a sort of a myth around the fact that. Loggers need to be lagered for extended periods of time to be drinkable. I think if they're, if they're really balanced, they can be churned out fairly fresh. And Jay sort of – did, he didn't have the luxury of sitting on beers. He was able – he had to turn them out, and, uh, and he was able to sort of execute them. So I knew that Jay was going to sort of feel at home here at notch as soon as he started drinking some of these beers. With Chris, how, how did there. you embrace –
3: you know, you started in 93, you were brewing yeah. – other places, so so you know you're doing decoction method. Tell us what that is, because that seems to be the catch catchphrase that if you do de- decoction, your beer is better.
4: Yeah, so I don't think that's the case. I mean, to me, it was to be able to understand something new to me at a very very uh, intimate level. And so I started off as a British brewer. I apprenticed under a couple of British brewers. I went to Siebel, which is really a lager at the time it was really about lager. Um but. I focused on ales for my first 10 years of my career, and so I wanted to learn more. And to me, it's like, if you're not learning, that leads to mediocrity. You always have to learn, because those who want to learn, that that's where mediocrity kind of breeds. And so what are we going to do here uh, with Notch? I love lagers. One of my first beers was Session Pills, and I did a signal temperature infusion with it, and I lagered it. But I, was, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn more about how decoction had an influence over alcohol. Over the beer, and I kept being told it wasn't necessary and that modern malts are highly modified and blah, 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 blah. And then I went to the Czech Republic, every beer there was like, you cannot substitute the flavors that we create with decoction with a single temperature infusion. You can't cheat with melanoid and malt. It's, it, there's no shortcuts. And I love that, no shortcuts, right? Um, so when we started Notch Here, I wanted to make sure that we had the ability to prove out that decoction was something that. Um, had a positive attribute, even in the modern world of highly modified malts. And so decoction for the folks at home is where rather than taking malt, mashing, and leaving it at a single single temperature, uh, enzymatic reaction turns starch into sugar, and then you know basically you have wort. With decoction, as you have a schedule of different temperatures where different at different sacrification temperatures, you're going to create different kinds of sugars. And the way you step that those sacrification levels, or just either from protein to beta to alpha, um, you can do that through boiling par- portion of the mash and returning that mash back to the main mash and stepping those temperatures up. That's a very simple way to do it. Mash schedules can get very, very complicated with decoction. We've, we've have done a number of them. It's labor-intensive, it's utility-intensive, it's time-intensive. Um, you know, A brew day that for a single temperature would be eight hours or six hours is typically 11 to 12. Um, but for me it's been a lot of fun to see how those flavors are extracted and how the impact of decoction really comes through in beer. Especially the pale lagers, which was my biggest surprise. Like I thought, you know, dark amber, those would really be like you're creating a lot of melanoid and those really it's really gonna shine. I found that in the pale lagers that we produce that there's a complexity there that maybe the average consumer may not recognize, but I certainly do and I certainly find it's it's worth worth the effort to you know, do a double or you know, double decoction and on check lagerism, you know, but it's <clears throat> it's a long fucking day. Excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm the
3: only guy here that's finishing all the beers, so we're taking a short break. <laughs> I'm be talking back the, too much. <laughs> You're great. We're, we'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions. Radio. All right. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Okay, hey, we're up here in Notch Brewing in Salem, Mass. So, Chris, this is amazing. So you you, you had your, your separate lager tap, now you've got a, a taps for the ale. So you set the bar up like, kind of like what, it's like a brewer's dream, right? You have quality control from start to finish.
4: Yeah, in, in, here in Salem, this is really our R&D. Uh, we have a 10-barrel brew house, which is not large by you know any standard, but allows us to do a lot of iteration of different things. Um, open, closed fermentation, horizontal lagering tanks and, uh, cheers, cheers. you know, new no different yeasts that we use and because we're not trying to, this is not our main production facility, we're not trying to crank out the same thing the same way every single time, which is a great challenge on its own and I've been there, but what we're trying to do here is really identify, uh, flavors, process ingredients that we like that we then scale and go elsewhere, um, to consumers and cans. So we still, we still brew a, a great portion of our beer out of Two Roads in Connecticut. We've been, we've been uh, brewing there, um, I think since 2012, 2013, whenever they started. You know, the, the year they started, we were there. Um, and it's a great spot to brew beer. There's a lot of other world-class brewers brewing beer that's there. Like the, that's
3: like the little secret of New England brewing, right? It's, I mean, I know uh, Lawson's, you know, a sip of sunshine. He yep. makes his cans there. And in New York City, this evil twin... And Stillwater Brewing out of there. Yeah, I mean, how did you find Two Roads? Because uh, we know Phil Markowski, Phil Markowski, is, man, he's a great brewer. Dude, Dude he's like Yoda. But did he track you down or no? Did so you?
4: it was interesting. I heard from someone else that uh, that Phil was doing this, um, and so you know, I gave Two Roads a call. And I think just because I'd been in the industry for a while, that I, I, you know, they allowed a meeting with me, and, and they saw that I, already, I was already in the market, had an existing. Uh, beer that they brought me in and it allowed me to um, transition to cans cuz I was in bottles at the point. I never wanted to be in bottles with this brand with Notch. Notch is a session beer. Cans make a hell of a lot more sense. And so they're putting a canning line in uh, within the first, you know, couple months of them opening. And that was just that was a game changer for us and then we came out with cans and 12 packs. And that is just huge volume for us and we see
3: so many breweries now putting out can can releases why did you say you didn't want to be in bottles and you want to be in cans? I mean session beer it's
4: at this point it's, it's kind of known but you know, session beer lower alcohol makes more sense you know if you're on a boat if you're you know doing activities like around a pool if you're playing golf or all these kind of acti- you know more active types of you know things where you want to drink beer but don't want an 8% beer right um, it made a lot more sense and anywhere that makes sense can make sense as well be just more flexible. Uh, bottles can't go everywhere. Cans can.
3: There's a sound effect right now. It could cr- crunch a can, and <laughs> crunch. And Jay had some questions. So Jay was, like, so excited. like, can we go see the, the brew system now? So what, what do you want to ask Chris? Because yeah. you're a great brewer, up-and-coming brewer. I love you. 49th State Brewing. And i opened in opening Sylvaticus up in Amesbury, Mass. What, what are some questions you want to ask Chris as a brewer?
5: Uh, I mean, for me, I'm just, you know, totally into the whole decoction system and seeing how, you know, knowing that you've been a brewer for a long time like being able to build kind of I don't know if it's your dream system but being able to build it from your collective knowledge and kind of doing things the right way because as a brewer at 49th we went through two expansions while I was there and every time it was a learning experience for me because it was kind of on the fly and and balancing production but also you know what we wanted to do with certain beer styles setting it up so we could do step mashing things like that Um, so I just you know I'm just a you know, brewer geek that just likes to see stuff and kind of, I mean, <laughs> understand how the process flow and see how every because everybody does it also a little different too because everybody has different experiences and like different reasons why they do things so. Yeah. Do you guess? want to see his brew
4: system? I do. Well, you're Show process me a guy, system. man. Come it, on. It may not be a dream system. I don't know. Everyone ever brews a dream system because after you brew on something for six months, you're like, you know, I could change this. <laughs> <thing. That's, laughs> and there's always the little, you know, modifications. But not every to make. and not every brewer gets to design his own system. You know, it's a lot of us. Kind kind of of a get lot of like, pressure. Somebody else does. <laughs> better get this right, right? Um, no, but I feel very fortunate. I was able to do that. You know, I finally got to a point with Notch that, like, all right, here we go. It's our one chance. Uh, hopefully not our one chance but the chance to, to make something really kind of cool from a system standpoint that has a great great deal of flexibility I mean the beer we have in front of us right now is a, a single hop pale ale oh. which comes out of the same system as our decocted beers it's a single temperature infusion mm-hmm. um, straightforward uh, I use Golden Promise as, uh, from Fossett as our base malt love that because coaxes a lot of flavor out of it Mm. um and so we're able to do you know wide variety of things i love i love low abv modest abv pale ales i mean i just love them and so it's been fun to, to brew a whole you know series of them here, and we'll continue to do that. As what? much as I'm a lager freak,
6: let's talk about the nose on this beer. The nose in this beer is fantastic. Thank you. It smells like it smells like honeydew to me. And tangerines. I, I had nothing it's to do
4: really with the beautiful. nose. I mean, it's a the funny thing about I think brewing pale ales is that the brewer has very little to do with like, the aromatics that come out. <laughs> it's yeah. the hop growers <laughs> right, and the hop right. breeders right, who do right. all the damn work, and mm-hmm. we just we just
3: toss so where, it. Where do you buy liquor. your hops for this?
4: Uh, so this came from Yakima Chief, um, and. This is a, did this come back? Yeah, Yakima Chief, it may have not. I take that back because I don't think they have this hop. This These is, this, this, no, this is, this is Eldorado. Hmm. Um, so Eldorado is uh, you know, fairly new in the grand scheme of things, hop. It's really uh, nice. sing, yes. So we've done a lot of single hop pale ales. Uh, one, for us to understand what that hop it contributes to the beer. Because we, you know, 10 barrels, 20 kegs, we'll go through that in no time in the tap room. And then our consumers get a chance to uh, look at or or smell, taste a beer that has a single hop. And then we'll do a blend. So we, at one point, we had three different single hop beers and we blended all three of those into a blend. And so the consumer could, or or customer could say, all right, these are the single hop, you know, varieties. Great, I got that. This is what they like in a blend and see how it totally changes the variety. So that's been a lot of fun to do that. I really love the, the uh, new hot fries coming out of uh, Germany, like you talked about. That's it. Totally uh,
5: reminds me of the mandarin, which I've used a number of times. Mandarina's like, is awesome. Pale lager, like yeah. it's just like amazing, kind of fresh, like orange tangerine. Like it just kind of pops to you, you know. And it's not it's not your typical flavor. And this kind of reminds. It's it reminds beautiful beer. I want to
3: ask you some other questions. So, t- you started in 1993. So that puts you in the category of like a craft beer pioneer. For some reason, I thought you were like 25 years old coming here. I didn't hadn't met you before. He's A couple 20, years ago, I talked 26. to Todd Mott, um, great you know old school New England brewer. Oh yeah. Are there other are, are there New England brewers that you look up to, or that are your 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 peers that, that you'd like to mention?
4: Oh, Todd is definitely on the top of that list. So when I was brewing at Tremont, Todd was at Commonwealth uh, in Boston, which is of uh, any place that closed, I miss the most. It's Commonwealth, uh, you know, cask beer before cask beer was even. Known in the country, and Todd was doing a great job. They used to go there for lunch, and Todd was really a, a great mentor to me when I didn't had no idea what I was doing. Um, he was always there for, for advice. So Todd Todd's definitely top of that list. Um, and then Piers, I mean Dan Paquette and I were um, have been brewing you know the same amount of time, and we both went through different places. And Dan and I always you know kept in touch, and it was it was fun to see him do ter, you know go through his iterations of different different projects. No pun intended. Um, so and those two guys stick out because they're two of the really old-school uh, Boston guys. Uh, Will Myers from, uh, from Cambridge uh, as well. Um, yeah, I think Will started brewing right about, about the same time I did. And uh, Will and I also both uh, contracted um, beers at Ipswich. And the two of us, being old-school guys, drug our ass, and every single time there was a beer at Ipswich being brewed, and made sure we were there to supervise and brew and, and things go well. And I really respect that. And well, you know, the guy that's been at it that long still has that level of dedication and commitment. And it really says a lot about him. So, you know, those guys kind of stick out as uh, peers and mentors that you know I've, I've looked up to.
6: It, the question is, where hasn't Todd Mott brewed at in New England? <laughs> it's really the question. Have you been to his new place? I have. I yeah. have. Yeah, he's, he's, he's in Kittery. And he's a great guy. He's just one of those guys. He, I, I he's, Tributary Brewing. Tributary. I mean, like, I, he's one of those guys that, like, you, you meet and you immediately, it's like putting on an old shoe. You know, you immediately just... He also has a well-groomed beard. <laughs> no, he's just a super nice I mean, guy. Was, that guy he created, what, the Harpoint
3: IPA? Yeah. And he was at, what, Portsmouth Brewing? Yeah. Did Kate the Great? And what's the, what's the version of that he's doing at Tributary? Todd the Lesser. Todd right? the Lesser. <laughs> Mott the Lesser. Mott the, Moth the Lesser. Lesser. Sorry, yeah. But got to give some shout-outs to some New England guys. Cheers, absolutely. I'm still trying to Cheers. learn about that. You know, we're in New York City, and you're right. If So many people are brewing in, on the West Coast. And like I said, I can find California IPAs in Massachusetts more than I can find, you know, Massachusetts IPAs. It's changing,
4: though. We've definitely seen a huge improvement over the last couple of years and that we've seen local and Massachusetts become important in a way it's never become important before. Because we have some new brewers who are young, and they've done a great job, and Making great beer and promoting themselves and making local important. And I, you know, as a guy's been at this for a while in the scene, it's been really good to see that. It's been fun to see that.
6: I I, mean, I, th- I think it's awesome that, uh, you know, uh, I'm, that I'm getting to sit here and drink these beers with you. It's it's a good experience. And then I completely agree with you <clears throat> that it's all about drinking local and drinking where you're from. And that's what I sort of suggest to you, Jimmy. Like. If you're gonna come here and you're gonna drink beers, go right to the source, man. It's the best way to drink beers. You're gonna get the freshest beers possible from the way that brewer wants you to drink them. Um, you're not gonna drink a uh, like. Uh, it's not like drinking beers off a shelf that, it, you know, once the brewer lets go of those cans, they don't really know how they've been treated, and it's so much better to drink close to so the maybe, source. Maybe that's the Massachusetts identity: is that you want to go to the the brewery
3: and, and, and drink the beers there. So, Jane and, and Mark, quick quick uh, overview. You guys came together. You will be opening a brewery, brew pub mm-hmm. in his Mass. It's a brewery proper. Quick, you know, five-second pitch, whatever. Jay.
2: So, uh,
5: Brewery Sylvaticus, uh, it's kind of a collaboration between Mark and I. We've known each other for a long time. Um, I spent the last five years up in Alaska 49th State, and uh, when Michelle and I were looking to move on, It was kind of a natural fit we were looking for something that was a little closer to home growing up in new york city we still have a lot of family there and uh mark and his wife were up here on the farm and we really kind of you know mark and i really bonded over this kind of you know from the earth from the wood kind of sourcing things and on the farm him growing having the hop farm there growing ingredients and this kind of dream of building something on that farm i think it really grew together between the two of us, and, you know, that is our long-term goal, is to build our, our kind of dream facility on his farm there. He's got 43 acres, it's in a great location, right on the Merrimack River, um, and, you know, so to get there, we're bootstrapping Sylvaticus in downtown It's going to be a A, downtown a pub Amesbury. where you
3: can go and buy so, pines you're on the river. So, yet yeah, we're
5: utilizing the ability to have a poor license and sell beer. Well, why, why mass? So well said, I mean you said it was a beer town.
6: Well what what brought me to New England to begin with is that my, my wife was born and raised in Merrimack, Massachusetts. We met in New York City. I'm a New Yorker, born you know, born and bred, but I'm I've been coming up here for years, you know, as a vacation spot. And my in-laws had this beautiful farm on with massive amount of acreage, and I would come up and I'd spend a week, two weeks. 10 days, whatever I was doing, a weekend, and I would, every single time I came up here, I sort of dreaded going back home, because it was just such an epically beautiful place, and my in-laws, you know, it was just them too, just this older couple in this beautiful environment, so when the opportunity came to buy the place, um, I didn't hesitate, you know, and I chucked my my 43 by 100 square foot lot in New York for 43 acres and didn't look back, and and Savannicus is sort of comes from the derivation of savage or of the wood. Um, and that really is inspired from from that farm and it's it's me I mean this probably I have 43 acres and about uh, 8 of it is cleared. So um, there's a lot of walking trails and you feel like you're in God's country if there is a God. And and you and you just it's just this epically beautiful place and it was what inspired me to come up to New England like moving to New England was a no-brainer to me when I got here Jay was up in Alaska and I was like you really need to come check out this place because I think you would you you get it as well and when minute he came he felt the same so that so for us to transition into a place I mean. To open the brewery at the farm is an enormous undertaking. That that's going to need a little bit of a step process. So hence why we're opening in Amesbury. But Amesbury uh, is the next town over, and it's a serious beer town. People like beer, and there's no brewery there. And we'd like to be proud so that, to there's say.
3: There's a beer bar. There's a beer store. Oh, they, I
6: mean, you know, there's a craft beer cellar. You know, there's there's multiple beer bars, and the, but there's no brewery. There used to be uh, Cody Brewing used to be in in Amesbury, but it has since passed. So we are very fortunate to get this really beautifully epic spot right in the center of a beer town and, um, and sort of plant our flag and say, hey, we're going to brew for this community. This is what, what's the most important to us. And down the road, when we, when we need to expand, it'll turn into the farm, which is we're, we're looking a couple of miles down the road.
3: You guys open it, but you know, how do you define a beer town? Like in New York City, everyone drinks beer, but everyone mm. drinks wine, everyone It's cocktails. Yeah. Like, you're saying Amesbury is a beer town. Is Salem a beer town?
4: Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to um, put the brewery here, I live here and my family's been here for over 100 years, is that uh, we saw that Salem um, consumers uh, bought a lot of craft beer, just based on our history. And it was uh, was a no-brainer for us in that if you look in the North Shore of Boston, there's certain communities that just sell a lot of beer, and Salem was one of them. But there's also, to me, it was a, there was an emotional connection because I've, my family's been here for a long time and being able to do that uh, across the river here is an old thread mill that my great-grandmother and grandmother worked at. My grandmother lost her finger there. Right? <laughs> so we have some connections wow. like, to the community. So to put a manufacturing facility. You have the authentic accent. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of lost my accent a little bit because I went to school in, in Boston. But anyways, um, it, was, it, was, it was a combination of emotional but also that, from the business standpoint, there's a lot of craft beer Good beer consumed within Salem. I think Amesbury is the same way. My in-laws live in Amesbury, so I'm there all the time. Oh, Well, well that's yeah,
6: good so to You guys will yeah.
0: see me. You know that that's funny
6: because she, your 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 family. I'd have a conversation with my mother-in-law, who's uh, she's she works in the Whittier home. Yeah, and that's yeah. she. We I'd heard some connection between the Whittier home and. And you. So why don't John you tell us, Whittier, tell us more about that? I mean, I,
4: that's my wife, Marielle and my wife, who's a uh, uh, co founder of, of Notch, her family. Uh, uh, that's her. So she has to answer that question. I can't. Small <laughs> world
6: New England. It is. It? It's great. It's good. <laughs> Let's make a toast in the- Cheers. Cheers, Chris, anybody-
3: Chris, you want to ask these guys a question? Uh, what they're planning? Because we haven't Winter heard so much Amesbury. about right in,
6: the, right in the center of downtown. If you the the space, ironically, we're sitting in your old boi, in your boiler room space, yeah. right? The the our brewery is the old boiler room space for the lower mill yard in Amesbury proper. We're right on the river walk, which they are oh, fantastic. in the in the process of redoing. Yeah. So you'll be able to just walk right past at the end of the river walk it dead ends at our brewery. The smokestack, fantastic. you know, the smokestack in yeah. downtown.
5: That's our building. Well, you guys the boiler well. plate is in our space. Yeah, everywhere. yeah, you guys, yeah. That's a yeah. great.
4: That's a great area. Fantastic.
6: Awesome. I'm looking forward to you coming to drink some beers.
3: Let's make a a cheers to everybody. Everyone just one more time. Say your full name and your affiliation. Mark Zapp, Sylvaticus
2: Brewing.
4: Chris Loring, Notch Brewing. Jay Bullen, Brewery Sylvaticus. Thanks so much
3: for joining us. Thanks to our sponsor, Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and lagers. This is Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our engineer, David Tadisher, who's going to piece this together.
2: And this will be (laughs) our
3: our New Year's Year's, uh, show Broadcast live. See you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo!
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you.